This is Christian Knutson and Sean Bull with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. We start with breaking news, as earlier this afternoon there was a shooting on State Street in downtown Madison. WORT News Director Shelley Pittman went to the scene shortly before broadcast. It was just misting and not really raining this afternoon around 3.30 p.m. when a man was shot in the 100 block of State Street just off the Capitol Square. Nearby pedestrians were sent streaming for safety. Witnesses say they heard several shots. The victim was brought out of Michelangelo's Coffee House by emergency workers shortly after and taken to a nearby hospital where he is undergoing surgery. At time of this recording, a bit after 5.30 p.m., Madison police were still gathering evidence, though the rain is complicating matters. Police are also collecting video evidence of the shooting. A Madison police spokesperson says digital evidence from the city's downtown surveillance network, as well as footage from nearby businesses, will play a large role in this investigation because this area is so heavily recorded. As of broadcast, the suspect remains at large and the 100 block of State Street is still cordoned off. For WORT News, I'm Shally Pittman. And now on to tonight's headlines. The judge who presided over the Waukesha Christmas Parade trial will announce her candidacy for state Supreme Court tomorrow, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Waukesha County Judge Jennifer Duro has hinted at a run since the end of the trial earlier this month. The conservative judge was first appointed by former Governor Scott Walker in 2012 and is an active member in the Republican Party of Waukesha County. Duro rose to national attention during the trial of Daryl Brooks, who was convicted of killing six people after driving a vehicle through the Waukesha Christmas Parade last year. Since the trial, Duro says she's been overwhelmed by requests to run for the state's top court. Duro is now the second conservative candidate in the race, joining former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly and two liberal candidates, Judge Everett Mitchell of Dane County and Janet Protoseahwicks of Milwaukee County. A federal judge ruled yesterday that the company behind the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline must work with indigenous tribes to create an emergency plan to prevent spills, reports the Associated Press. The company was sued by the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa in 2019 in order to require the company remove parts of the pipeline from its lands, saying that if the aging pipeline were to leak, it would cause catastrophic damage. The ruling calls on Enbridge to work with the Bad River Band to discuss installing emergency shutoff valves, as well as develop protocols for shutting down the pipeline in an emergency situation. The two parties must submit their proposals to the court by December 24th. A lawsuit against the Madison Metropolitan School District over gender identity guidelines has been thrown out by a Dane County judge, the Capital Times reports. The lawsuit was brought forward by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative law firm often called Will. The issue stems from a 2018 document outlining how MMSD staff should work with and support transgender students. Part of that document says that staff should not disclose information about a student's gender identity to parents unless legally required to do so, or if the student has given the okay. The lawsuit originally named 14 anonymous individuals, but over the years, that has dropped down to just one. The judge ruled last week that the remaining petitioner did not have sufficient standing in the case, as they would not be personally harmed. Will has stated that it has filed for an appeal to that decision. And now, on to today's top stories. 
After a contentious debate over the future of the Madison public market, the City Council approved a budget amendment earlier this month to provide the project funding it needs to move forward. Local entrepreneurs were excited when they heard this news, saying that the market will give underrepresented, underrepresented businesses across the county a chance to grow and shine. WORT producer Nate Wagehout has the story. Carmel Jackson is the owner of Melly Mel's Catering, which focuses on southern comfort food greens, yams, fried fish, and chicken. She's also one of the five recipients of the Market Ready program with the Madison Public Market. Jackson says that being accepted to the market will help expand Southern comfort food to the entire Madison area, a type of cuisine that Jackson says is rare in Madison. We will have a place to serve our food on a daily basis, have people have easier access to Melly Mel's foods instead of having to to um, book a catering job. For me, it's, it, it is. It's something different. It's something that includes all diversity and all different types of businesses and people, something that was offered to me that I had no idea existed. The Madison Public Market will have room for 30 permanent anchor vendors and is set to be able to host over 130 different vendors every year. As of today, only five vendors have been confirmed for the market, those who have been accepted to the market's market-ready program. In addition to securing a spot in the market, those five vendors will also receive $19,000 to support their operation. Being able to operate out of the Madison public market is very personal to Jackson because, to her, it's home. It's a spot that I can, that's going to feel more at home to me because this are, these are, I went to East High School right down the street, you know. I played at Tenney Park, you know. I, you know, had many friends in Maple Bluff, and, and this is streets that I played on for many years. And for me to have a business there is like giving back to my, my community, you know. After the Madison Council passed a budget amendment to fund the Madison Public Market earlier this month, the market has just about passed every hurdle it needs to open its doors in the fall of 2024. The idea to build a public market in Madison has been tossed around for over 15 years, but in 2015, the Common Council finally approved the project with a $14 million budget. The Madison Public Market Foundation, who will operate the market, calls the market a, quote, year-round public market where small businesses and minority business owners can get their start. According to the project's website, it will hold fresh produce, food stands, merchant space for local artists, and community rooms. Although they face some recent inflationary hurdles, the public market has just one more barrier before they can open, which is getting the money for the project awarded to them through the city's joint review board next March. James Shulkin, a board member on the Public Market Foundation, says that he was ecstatic when the Common Council approved the needed funding to open their doors. I think really the conversation that went during the discussion of the market among the council members, but also really some of the members of the public that testified, especially some of those vendors who are part of the Market Ready program, I think that really made a difference in the, in the mind of the council members. Although only five businesses have been confirmed for the market, there is still room for many more, and many businesses are vying for a spot. One of those businesses is Madame Chu's Delicacies, a Southeast Asian food retailer selling things like Sambal Nunya, 
a sort of red chili paste, and satay peanut nunya, a peanut and pepper sauce base. Madame Chu's delicacy began in 2017 by Madison resident Josie Chu. Currently, they don't have a physical storefront outside of a pop-up on State Street. Instead, they sell their products at markets around Madison, like the Willie Street Co-op and Metcalf's Market at Hilldale. While Chu has not yet been accepted to the market, she says that she wants to be a part of the market to bring the Southeast Asian experience to Madison. The whole point is, rather than having everybody fly all the way to Singapore, to Malaysia, to Indonesia to experience the cuisine, why not, you know, carry that over here and have everybody else experience? And while she has not yet been accepted to the Madison public market, Chu says that she's happy that the project looks to finally be going forward. It is like, oh my gosh, we are building a home. We are building a foundation. We are building a future for, for all of Madison's and, and future entrepreneurs. It is a fulfillment of a promise to us. It is a place that we can now call home. Both Carmel Jackson and Josie Chu say that the market is not just about their own businesses, but about the future as well. Jackson says that she hopes the market will allow her to create a legacy to pass down to those around her who want to continue a career in food. It'll be good for my family who is continuing on with the business once I slow down and I try to um, keep it, you know, family-oriented or passing things on to my grandchildren and my, my children. So, and, and people in the community who have worked with me for many years, if it wasn't from the school district, it was from the restaurant and then to carry on through the public market. James Shulkin with the Public Market Foundation says that they will now begin to figure out who their large permanent tenants will be and will be able to begin announcing who will be in the market next spring. Entrepreneurs and vendors who want to be involved with the market can apply for a vendor space through the Public Market Foundation's website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookiehout. This week, Madison Mayor Sati Rhodes-Conway is out of office. In fact, she's even out of the country, leading a 20-person delegation to Madison's sister city of Canafing. That's a town close to the capital city of Banjul in the West African nation, the Gambia. The goal of the trip is to collaborate and facilitate the relationship with one of Madison's ten sister cities. But what is a sister city? WORT reporter Abigail Levins has more. Mayor Rodas Conway and her delegation are slated to meet with Taleb Ahmed bin Souda, the mayor of Kanafing, during this week's sojourn to the West African Republic of the Gambia. They're also slated to meet with the country's president, Adama Barrow, and participate in an official ceremony celebrating a partnership between Madison College and the University of the Gambia, along with other stops. Kanafing is one of Madison's 10 sister cities. But what is a sister city? I called Deputy Mayor Katie Crawley to find out. A sister city is a community in another part of the world that Madison has established a relationship with, some for many, many years. And the reason that they were started, and I know other communities and even states have uh, such relationships, is the belief that person-to-person ties are the strongest. Kennefing has been a Madison sister city for about six years. And developing it as an official sister city was a project of Wisconsin State Representative Samba Balde during his time as a Madison alder. 
The Sister City program, however, has been around much longer, for almost 25 years. The city of Madison officially established a sister city program in 1998 with the goal of promoting person-to-person ties, peace, and better understanding of all cultures, though some of the city's relationships go back further than that. Arcatel El Salvador was Madison's first official sister city. And Madison Representative Carolyn Gantner said the partnership saved lives in El Salvador by bringing attention to the violence in that country. And it was created in order to bring to light the state-sponsored violence against the people of Arcatel and actually all of El Salvador. Gantner said one project Madison and Arcatel are working together on is the Historical Memory Project, which helps Arcatel collect and record information for the Historical Memory Museum, which honors the country's history of conflict. Charles James, the Madison representative of Sister City Freiburg, Germany, said the main purpose of Sister Cities is to create relationships with people of different countries. Uh, Sister Cities were created so that uh, people in one community in the United States could communicate with people in a community in another country. James said UW has an exchange program for students to go to Freiburg, and many Freiburg students will come to Madison. Another Madison sister city is Vinius, Lithuania. This partnership was started in 1989 before Lithuania gained independence with a humanitarian focus. And Madison representative Dina Zimluskas Yazivaikas said that since they gained independence in 1991, the focus has shifted to become more of a cultural exchange program. Zimluskas Yazivaikas said the main purpose of the partnership is to help people be aware of Lithuania and their struggles. I think the more people that are aware of Lithuania and where it is and the potential pressure there, the better off that whole country would be. Bahardar, Ethiopia, is another sister city that is focused on cultural exchanges. Representative Rahel Desalegne said their goal is to foster relationships between the two cities. So the benefit is us engaged with our counterparts in Gaza, and we hope in the future there will be more of the cultural exchanges. Madison also does cultural exchanges with Kenafing, the Gambia. Jera Kujabi, the Madison representative, said the mayor of Kanafing had visited Madison twice, and now the Madison mayor is visiting Kanafing for the first time. Kujabi said the sister cities are important because they connect people between countries. The goal is simple. We are connected more by what uh, makes us common than what sets us apart. Other official sister cities of Madison are Camagui, Cuba, Montova, Italy, Obihiro, Japan, and Tapatitlan, Mexico. The newest sister city is Cusco, Peru, which was officially added in January 2022. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. Today is day five of the Zanta Club of Madison's 16 Days of Activism. It's an event to help raise awareness of gender-based violence both here in Wisconsin and around the world. To learn more about the group and its 16 Days of Activism, WORT producer Nate Weggehout sat down with Gail Zalewski of the Zanta Club of Madison earlier today. Well, Gail, I, I don't know if a lot of people are really super familiar with your organization, Zanta, so let's start off there. Tell me tell me a little bit about what is Zanta and, and sort of what are you fighting for? Okay, well, Zanta has actually been around for 103 years, and we are working to build a better world for women and girls. And we do this through advocacy 
efforts, educational programs, and service projects. And these all work together to empower women and pro provide them opportunities to live on an equal basis with men. And these are done on a local level to induce change and all the way up to an international level when there are projects being done on a global basis where we coordinate with the UN. Um, we have over 20,000 members in over 60 countries. And we've actually been active in the Madison area for over 80 years. So we're the best kept secret in the city of Madison. Well, well, maybe not for too much longer because uh, the the reason that we are talking uh, right now is that we are right in the middle of the 16 Days of Activism, uh, which is sort of uh, Zanta's yearly campaign against gender-based violence. So, so tell me a little bit about the 16 Days of Activism. Okay, the 16 Days of Activism, that is one of our global campaigns against gender violence where we orange the world to bring attention to gender-based violence, hopefully to help end gender-based violence. And as I mentioned, it's a worldwide campaign. It began on November 25th, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And it will run through December 10th, which is Human Rights Day. And we have Zonta members, again, worldwide, and our allies where we stand together during this campaign and unite our voices to advocate for all who have suffered gender-based violence. And we continue to work to end violence against women. And as I mentioned, our mission is to build a better world for women and girls. And in the Madison area, some of the things that we have planned is we will have the Overture Building lit orange on the 2nd of December, which is the opening day of the with opening of the symphony holiday concert. And again, just bringing attention to the fact that gender-based violence still exists. Um, we also have the historic Madison Municipal Building, which will be lit orange that is already lit orange and will stay lit orange throughout the campaign, thanks to our partnership with the city of Madison and Mayor Sacha Rhodes-Conway. We'll also have teams of Zonchins handing out orange ribbons and cards at various events throughout Madison during the 16 days. And these will explain our campaign to end gender violence. Now, this year you have a, a handful of topics that you are sort of focusing on each day. For instance, uh, today is is sort of resources for victims of domestic abuse. And then later on, uh, you will there's more of a focus on missing and murdered indigenous women. So uh, I, I want to ask, why why is it important to get the word out about this? And, and especially here in Wisconsin, what are you hoping that people take away from the 16 days of activism? The 16 Days of Activism is primarily an awareness campaign. People tend to forget that these things exist in every community. And we're trying to bring awareness to these things and to also get people involved. As I mentioned, we, in addition to doing awareness, we also do advocacy. Um, one of the things that we have done in the past is in spring, we have taken groups of young women, high school girls, um, in conjunction with End Abuse Wisconsin, and we have actually taken them to 
the state capitol and had them present various bills and talking points to their state legislatures, legislators, and advocate on behalf of passage of certain bills that would help either work in favor of survivors or help um, eliminate various forms of violence. So we're trying to get people educated and involved and help to end these forms of violence because we know that they go on in every community. And this year, in addition to our broad domestic violence, sexual assault, gender violence, we are all, have also selected elder abuse and mis murdered and missing Indigenous women as our focus. Keep an eye out for the the orange over the next couple of days here. Uh, well, well, Gail, I, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to to share with me about this here today? Um, I guess just pe for people to keep in mind that ending gender violence is something that everyone should strive for and try to envision a world in which there is no violence where women would not have to live in fear of violence. That's one of the things that we ended our campaign with last year. Envision a world where no woman lives in fear of violence because we, that's something that we do not have today. So just envision what that would be like and then feel free to join us to help make that come true. I've been talking with Gail Zalewski with the Zonta Club of Madison about these 16 days of activism. Gail, just one more time, where can people find more information? On our website, Zonta Club of Madison, and also our Facebook page, Zonta Club of Madison. Also, the Zonta websites on international website will provide a lot of information about Zonta overall, zonta.org. And there's also a Zonta Says No website, Zonta Says No, all one word, dot org, to provide information about this particular campaign. Gail, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with sports editor Donnie Slusher about the hiring of Badgers football's third coach of the year, Luke Fickle. Especially hiring a guy with zero Wisconsin experience at all, that is very much against the tradi traditional Wisconsin way. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by sports editor Donnie Slusher to discuss new Badgers football head coach Luke Fickle and the end of the Badgers season. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show, Donnie. Happy to be here, Hope. Thank you for having me. So it seems like just a few weeks ago, we were on the show talking about the departure of Paul Christ. What has happened since then? Um, the Badgers, unfortunately, looked pretty much the same. Uh, Jim Leonard took over, and um, he, he he's someone who's uh, supposed to be um, a big candidate for the head coaching job. And ever since, you know, ever since he took over the Badgers, there have been some good moments, like against uh, Northwestern and Purdue. But there have also been some pretty ugly moments that Chris McIntosh uh, took into consideration when uh, when choosing the coach, like against um, Iowa and most recently against Minnesota. But um, the biggest issue is that the Badgers didn't really look very different at all. There was too many mistakes. Defense was pretty good, and the offense just wasn't good enough. Can you tell us a little bit about the new head coach, Luke Fickle? Luke Fickle, uh, he's an Ohio guy. He uh, played at Ohio State in the mid-'90s and has coached only in the state of Ohio since then. Um, he 15 of his first 17 seasons as an assistant were with Ohio State, and the, for the past six years he's been at Cincinnati, um, a group of five school, and um, the most or the the biggest the most important part of his resume was that he took Cincinnati to the uh, college football playoff last year, which is an unheard of feat given how small of a school they are. And most most teams that that only make the playoff are the powerhouses, your Alabama, LSU teams like that. From what you can tell, how are players feeling that Jim Leonard was ultimately not chosen to continue as head coach? Uh, players weren't feeling too great. Um, Leonard was a was extremely popular. The players loved him for weeks. A lot of the players, like Herbig and Torchio, have been advocating uh, for Leonard to get the job. They thought that he should have had the job for weeks already. Um, so a lot of their reactions have been, I mean, not many of them have gone out and 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 said how angry they were because you know there's there is still a team that that they want to um, you know they still want to save face they don't want to be too aggressive but uh, to get uh, for an indication of how players probably feel there's a um, current rookie for the um, a current rookie for the Saints Eric Burrell who's a former Badger he said that it will go down as the worst decision that Wisconsin has ever made in their history which is the, a hot take. Um, so mostly negative, and even if f- uh, fans are positive, or even if players are positive about it, they probably wouldn't go out just because of how popular Leonard was. Is this decision starting to impact the team's roster and also the coaching staff? Um, yes, it hasn't affected the current roster as much yet because if players are going to transfer, it's it's probably going to start pretty soon. Um, the, you know, the se- the regular season just ended. Uh, there have there there have been a, f- a few players who have where there where rumors have arisen of them transferring like Braylon Allen, who f- was following running back coaches across the country, and there was there was even rumors of when he was confronted with the rumors about him transferring, he said that he's that he's going to stay here as long as as long as Leonard stays here, which is an indication that you know chances maybe aren't high of him staying. Um, so that's that'd be something to look out for in the future. Um, it, it has already uh, affected recru- recruiting, however. A couple players decommitted yesterday, just hours after the news was released, and that's a blow considering how Wisconsin already doesn't pull in many recruits. So um, it it is already having or it is already showing effects. Do you think this decision marks a new era in Wisconsin football? And how much do you think it has to do with Chris McIntosh? Um, I think Chris McIntosh. I don't think it's any. I mean, it, you can go, you can look past football, like look at all sports. Um, this is Chris McIntosh's second season. Um, at the beginning of last season, he hired Marissa Mosley to coach women's basketball, and she had zero Wisconsin experience uh, coaching or playing. 
and now uh, or and now this season in football firing Paul Christ in the middle of the season was a very non-Wisconsin move um and especially hiring a guy with zero Wisconsin experience at all that is very much against the tradi- traditional Wisconsin way and most Wisconsin coaches um across all sports they have familiarity with the program they used to be an assistant coach they uh, played they played here for a few years so this is so this definitely marks a new way of thinking for the Badgers, and a lot of that probably has to do with the influx of Big Ten money. Um, Big Ten is uh, teams are making more or programs are making more money just by being in the Big Ten, making more money than ever. Uh, Michigan State last season they signed uh, Mel Tucker to a lucrative you know ten year or a ten million per year multiple year deal, and now the Badgers uh, went for a big hire in Luke Fickle. How did the Badgers finish out their season during the Axe game this past weekend? Uh, it wasn't pretty, as I'm sure most saw. Uh, the Axe game was pretty indicative of the re- of the rest of Wisconsin season. Um, there were uh, positive flashes, a few big Mertz passes, a few important defensive stops, but it didn't really matter because it was bogged down by uh, mind-numbing mistakes, like the embarrassing string of uh, false starts near the end of the game. Um, and there were also some unexpected, you know, mini disasters like Graham Mertz went out in the middle of the game. Uh, Chase Wolf had to try to lead um, a comeback charge after not playing at all this season. Um, Braylon Allen didn't even play. He was uh, he was ruled out before the game started, which was a massive blow uh, to the Wisconsin offense. Um, and ultimately, Wisconsin just just wasn't good enough. They're fine enough to to, to stick around, but they couldn't win. What do you think are the key challenges and questions facing the team after this regular season wraps up? Trying to salvage the roster is should be the biggest priority. Uh, Leonard was obviously very popular, so players are going to be upset. Some may transfer, some may, you know, recruits are already deco- recruits are already decommitting. Um, so trying to salvage the roster, the current roster, and the incoming roster, and the recruits and the transfer portal should be the biggest priority. Um, Luke Fickle, he is an acclaimed coach. So it, it, it should be easier to bring in uh, transfers. There is a slight history of Wisconsin transfers like being successful. Like Russell Wilson is the big, exam- is the big example. Um, they, they brought in a few transfers this past season. So that is probably the direction that they'll be looking because you know the recruiting the past couple of years hasn't been up to par. And also a good, good thing is that uh, Fickle uh, was a very good recruiter, especially for being at Cincinnati. He, he consistently... Um, ranked higher than the school like Cincinnati should rank when it comes to recruit when it comes to recruiting. Um, so the Badgers should be optimistic that you know Fickle can bring in some recruits and salvage some sort of recruiting class. But the first recruiting class, uh, um, whenever a coach joins a new team, is usually pretty rough, and I expect it to be less than stellar. Um, Fickle also has to assemble some sort of coaching staff. Uh, he will probably bring in uh, coaches who used to be at um, he used to he used to coach them at Cincinnati. He has plenty of Midwest Big Ten connections, being at Ohio State for so long. I trust that he will be able to assemble some sort of staff. And um, there's also still a bowl game left to play, which I feel like a lot of Wisconsin fans are kind of forgetting. Um, I mean, but at the same time, they shouldn't really get their hopes up for any sort of illustrious bowl like in years past. It will not be any sort of Rose Bowl or even the Las Vegas Bowl like last year. Uh, probably the um, Guaranteed Rate Bowl or the Pinch Stripe Bowl. I'm, I'm hoping for the Cheez-It Bowl, <laughs> maybe a return to the Mayo Bowl. 
um, Mertz can, you know, get his uh, redemption after dropping the trophy. Speaking of Mertz, there's really no telling uh, how the new administration will feel about some some, um, some current players like Mertz. There was a uh, there's a four star quarterback recruit that committed to that committed to Cincinnati. Uh, there is a chance that he may decommit from Cincinnati, come to Wisconsin. It's still all up in the air, but. Uh, with the way Mertz ended the season, there is definitely there will definitely be conversations about moving on from him. Are there any other off-season storylines that the sports team will continue to monitor at the Cardinal? Um, this should be a pretty this should be a pretty busy off-season, given that you know uh, Coach Fickle has to assemble his his coaching staff, who has to bring in recruits, bring in um, you know players via the transfer po- uh, portal. Um, so there should be plenty of stories. Also, transfer portal going both ways. If Braylon transfers, which is a real possibility, the uh, we'll be on top of that. Um, any sort of big news with player acquisitions or player departures uh, will obviously be on top of that. Um, should be interesting. Is there any other football and sports news you'd like to share? Football is ending, and this season was not up to Wisconsin's standards. The fans should be excited because, you know, our volleyball team is uh, the NCAA tournament is starting this Friday. Wisconsin is a 1C. They're playing uh, Quinnipiac at the Fieldhouse at 7 p.m. on Friday. Fans should look forward to that. The uh, women's hockey team is off to a great start. The men's basketball team is off to a great start to the season. The men's hockey team is not off to a great start. Uh, that'll be something to monitor whether coaching change will come. should. We'll see. Um, but... Yeah, uh, those are the highlights. Thank you so much, Donnie, for keeping track of this all and coming on the show. Of course, Hope. Thank you for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg celebrates Giving Tuesday to showcase how donations to the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Rehab Center helps them to combat avian influenza. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, of course, we want to say a huge thanks to everyone who has given anything on Giving Tuesday to any nonprofit, wildlife, animal-related, or other. Giving Tuesday is a time where we set aside a day to remember that nonprofits really don't get a lot of funding for the things that we do. And maybe if you have purchased a lot of items for your Christmas holidays or maybe the holidays in general, uh, would you... You know, think about maybe making a donation towards wildlife rehabilitation services, which you can absolutely do on our website at www.giveshelter.org. Because as you know, or many of you may know, we are a critical resource here in our area in Wisconsin, helping so many different species and thousands of animals every year that are sick or injured that really don't have anyone else to help them. So I wanted to share some information today about some cases that have been honestly quite sad here in the last couple of days, but 
that are really important in thinking about how we are an important resource in not only our field of wildlife ecology or rehabilitation or veterinary medicine, but also the public health, because we are still dealing with an ongoing highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak in the North American states. And it is now up to a total count of 4,021 wild birds that have been tested and positive for avian influenza. And that was as of last week, November 22nd, 2022, with in the state of Wisconsin, 182 positives. And you can add another one of those to the list because we have now received two tundra swans in the last week that were highly suspicious for avian influenza because they were showing symptoms of neurological activity, depression, really sad, heads hanging down, tremors of the head. And then the biggest thing that we saw, which was very interesting, was that their corneas, so their eyes, were very cloudy. So we called it corneal opacity. And it's something that it took us a little while to look into the research, but it was a common symptom in a lot of our research studies that have looked at infections of other waterfowl with the H5N1 highly pathogenic virus. So in experimental infections from a paper that actually came from the 2015 timeframe, so, but in those studies, they used 99 domestic ducks and three control birds. And when they were inoculated with the virus to see what would happen, corneal opacities appeared more frequently than any sort of neurological signs or mortality. And that is really interesting because both of the swans that were admitted to the Wildlife Center here in the last week both had strong corneal opacities. And one so far has come back as a result as a positive, and we had to make sure that we were in full quarantine measures and that we were being very safe because it is a disease that's still transmissible to people. As wildlife rehabilitators, all we get is the information that this bird looks like it's sick, it's not doing well, and someone goes out and finds it and you know, members of the public are handling those animals or in close contact with those animals. And even though we're taking those extra precautions to be in, you know, Tyvek suits and masks and face shields and gloves, you know, if you're out there, let's say hunting season right now is where most people are finding sick waterfowl, you know, you're at risk to potentially transmitting that disease. And it's kind of a scary thing. We know that mammals can get it. And we've been in part of some of those studies this year as well. So knowing that we've gotten a couple cases already here at our wildlife center in Wisconsin, and again, both were swans, what about some of the other centers? Well, the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center of Minnesota, WRC, we are close to them and they're our staff. And in this particular case in Minnesota, on uh, last Thursday, they, sh they shared some information and a video about doing an exam on a, a neuro swan, another swan that was lethargic, and then also tested positive for avian influenza. But they've had more than eight patients test positive for the virus in the last week and a couple of more suspicious swans after that. And because we're in the middle of the waterfowl migration, they're seeing snow geese, ringneck duck, trumpeter swans, and even they had a local crow that died of the virus. But when you look up on the USDA's website about what different species are being seen currently right now, we're also seeing things like scop. So we have lesser and we have greater scop. We have gadwall, American green-winged teal, American widgeon, northern shovelers, blue-winged teal, mallards, American widgeons. You name it, if those waterfowl are migrating and they are congregating at large sites, you're probably bound to have some viral infection and spread, especially because they're going to be in close contact with each other and in water sharing the same space. So right now we are seeing a huge influx of avian influenza patients. And the more that we're able to detect that and get those data points into the system, 
you know, for public and human health, that's important for reporting purposes, knowing that this disease can still be transferred to people. If you're out bird watching or you're out hunting or you're out walking around and you're doing things in areas with high traffic where there are waterfowl present, you know, please be conscious of where you're walking. If your shoes, you know, can you put your shoes in a different bag afterwards and wash your shoes when you get you home? You know, find a laundry bag that you can put through the washing machine, add some bleach. I think the recommendation is about a half a cup of bleach in your load for your laundry to get rid of avian influenza viruses or just influenza viruses in general. And think about where you're then walking next with those shoes. You know, are you walking around other places around your backyard or your house? Because fomite transfer, you know, just through direct contact is common. It might be something worth thinking about whether you're, if you've held an animal, if you rescued it, wash your clothes. If you walked in that area, wash your shoes, wash your hands really well. And think about what you've been touching and, you know, avoid mucous membrane contact. So don't rub your eyes or, you know, rub your nose or anything after you've touched a bird. Those are all parts of normal, you know, hygiene practices, but, you know, working with wildlife, it's better to be safe than sorry if you've got some extra dish gloves around or something that will at least help protect you in some form or fashion. So, yes, we are admitting lots of these animals. Rehab centers all around the country are finding that people are, especially now with hunting season going on, admitting sick birds to their centers. We are testing so that we are able to figure out how many and whether or not we're at risk to transmitting it to ourselves or other patients. And so from a human health perspective, I think it's really important that we are here helping in that effort. Although we're not the ones doing the tests, we're getting all the samples taken. And it takes a lot to take those swabs while you're in full biosecurity, our personal protective equipment. And it's, it's a long process to get that done. It takes a lot of time. And I think it's definitely better than leaving that animal out in the wild to suffer from the virus and continue to spread it. So we're glad that we're able to help get that animal an area where they can have supportive care and rest. And then we can test. And if we know that it's going to be a positive or we're very concerned it will be, you know, being able to help in, in the effort of providing a humane euthanasia so they aren't suffering, knowing that the mortality rates are really, really high in a lot of the species that we work with. So it's a tough thing we're dealing with right now, but we're still dealing with it. So if you've forgotten about it, it's not been in the news recently, just know that it's still ongoing and we're still trying to do the best that we can with a lot of our specialty species, waterfowl and other birds. So thank your wildlife rehabilitators if you see them. And also think about giving them a donation on Giving Tuesday, because honestly, that's a lot of money to run tests and to um, take the staff time to be able to check these animals out and make sure we're checking off all the boxes, the diagnostics. You know, what if it was lead toxicity and not avian influenza? I want to be able to test every swan for lead toxicity first, which is something very common and can show really the same symptoms or similar symptoms to avian influenza. So you never know until you test or until you see that animal and, and try to figure out as best as you can what all of the issues are and then decide is a treatment plan worth this animal, you know, being here for multiple weeks or months, or is this going to be a high chance of mortality? All of those are decisions we're trying to make for every individual animal that comes through our doors. So thanks for listening, and hopefully you aren't out and about finding more sick waterfowl, but if you are, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, we're available here in Madison, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day for your wildlife questions if you have them. Thanks for listening on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. On this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine looks to the skies to learn how moons are born, and by extension, the origins of our solar system. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, 
And tonight, I'd like to talk about how astronomers found a moon in the making almost 100 light years away. First, let's talk about how planetary systems like our own solar system are formed. Stars are created when clouds of gas and dust collapse and heat up. The vast majority of the material in those clouds go to making the star, but not all of it. A tiny fraction ends up in orbit around the newborn star, forming what is known as a protoplanetary disk. Tiny grains of dust in that disk collide with one another and stick together, forming bigger grains. These grains keep on colliding and growing larger and larger until planets are formed. This process, however, is far from neat and tidy. In fact, we think it's a common occurrence for planets to run into each other in violent collisions amidst all the chaos of the forming planetary system. This is how we believe our own moon came into being. One of the great discoveries of the Apollo missions was that the moon is made of the same material that Earth is. Prior to Apollo, it was hotly debated how the moon was formed. Did it form separately from Earth in the same cloud of gas? Was it captured and pulled into orbit around Earth? Did they form side by side? Nobody really knew until the Apollo missions brought back samples from the lunar surface. Scientists found that those moon rocks were made of the same minerals found on Earth, such as olivine and pyroxene. Crucially, the rocks found on the moon had the same properties as the rocks found in the crust and mantle of the Earth, the outermost layers, and not the material in the core deeper in the Earth. This led scientists to conclude that the moon was formed as the result of a giant impact. In the early days of the solar system, the planet that would become Earth collided with another object about the size of Mars, throwing out an enormous amount of debris from the outer layers of Earth. Much of this debris stayed in orbit around Earth and eventually came together to form what we know as the moon today. But what about moons in other planetary systems? If it happened to us, it probably happened to other planets in other solar systems as well. And that brings us to a paper recently published in the journal Nature by graduate student Tajana Schneiderman at MIT and her collaborators. In this paper, the team observed a protoplanetary disk around the star HD 172555, about 100 light years away from Earth. What stood out about the system immediately was the weirdly high amounts of silicon monoxide and carbon monoxide present in this system. When observing a protoplanetary disk, it's not at all unusual for scientists to find evidence of minerals like olivine and pyroxene, just like we find on Earth and the Moon. But silicon monoxide is weird because it indicates the presence of vaporized rock. We don't expect to see silicon monoxide at all unless a massive collision has taken place. The team of astronomers also found a surprisingly large amount of carbon monoxide in the disk. Carbon monoxide is super common in clouds of gas and dust in the galaxy, but things get tricky inside of a protoplanetary disk. Carbon monoxide is a pretty fragile molecule, so it tends to get broken apart easily by the light of the newborn star. Finding carbon monoxide in a protoplanetary disk means that it has to have gotten there recently. The astronomers found an amount of carbon monoxide in the disk equal to about 10 times the mass of the Earth's entire atmosphere, which is kind of a lot. Not only that, but the carbon monoxide is really close to the central star, within 10 astronomical units or 10 times the distance from the Earth to the Sun. That's way too close to the star for carbon monoxide to survive for very long, and it happens to be at about the same place in the disk as the silicon monoxide. This led the team to conclude that the most likely scenario is a giant impact that took place between two forming planets in the disk, throwing out debris in the form of carbon monoxide and silicon monoxide. 
Based on the amount of carbon monoxide, this probably happened about 200,000 years ago, which in astronomical terms is super recent, practically yesterday. These new results shed new light on the formation of planets and moons, and they show us what to look for when studying giant impacts in other planetary systems. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy, and have a stellar week. A quick correction from earlier in the broadcast. The Madison Public Market will be in the former Fleet Building on the corner of East Johnson and First Street, not near the East Town Mall as originally stated. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe wherever you get your audio. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. Up next is Spanish language news with A Nuestro Patio.